Well, it's a really great privilege for me to be with you this morning. Um, my name's Jason Hart, and uh, I am Kendrick Neal's friend, uh, husband to my wife, Autumn, and uh, father to my daughter, Ava. My other four are in uh, children's ministry this morning. Um, it is a great privilege uh, to get to share the Word of God with you here. I was able to preach here in March of 2018, um, and our family looked a little different back then. Uh, everyone was much younger, and so I preached here in March, and three weeks later, we moved to Hawaii for me to become a chaplain at 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines in Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. And so I think I, we got a, a picture, right? So... Um, I've got a few photos. Oh, no, we don't have that first one, but the ministry there was amazing. I don't know how you could, if you could see that, but um, so that was a baptism that took place in the back of a Humvee. So if you cut plastic and put it in a, a truck bed, you can do some amazing things. Uh, and so that was uh, uh, one of the Marines that, that we saw baptized on one of our deployments in Okinawa. And then if you give, it, give me the next one, uh, there's another one. That's a different Marine. And you can see the, the Jordan River hue of brown in the water. Uh, it's, uh, it was uh, pretty gross. So I told him, make sure that you keep your mouth shut uh, when we dunk you. But Jesus, you know, if you die from the water, you're going to be with Jesus. So it's all good. Um, uh, another baptism that happened during that time if uh, you give the next slide, um, that one, kind of hard to see, but the, the couple that's standing closest to the water, that was my CO and his wife, who got to baptize uh, his daughter uh, on Christmas Eve in 2018. She had made a profession of faith and wanted to follow Jesus with their life. And uh, all of these are dear, but this next one is a picture of my almost 10-year-old Hazel. Uh, she took her first communion. Uh, she got baptized, was able to baptize her. She made a profession of faith to follow Jesus while we were there. And those were exciting, but the countless three years of just countless gospel conversations that we had, and doing life as a chaplain, you deal with the highs and lows of life. We, had, we, we lost five Marines and sailors during that three years. Uh, I did so many uh, amazing uh, worship services in the field. I got a couple of photos of those. Uh, not very lovely behind them with the porta johns, but when you're out in the austere environment and you're doing a worship service, I had had our, our song books out there. Those guys were singing. I uh, had to take that photo. I mean, we had, I mean, the services, we usually had about 30 Marines gather. Uh, so about 20% of each company. And we got a couple of more, I think. This is one where we were at a range and I was uh, teaching a Bible study. Had, had guys come out. And, uh, and this last one here, I think was probably one of my favorite photos. Is, those are uh, mortarmen there. They, they, uh, they are what we call 81s. They uh, fire off, they shoot 81 millimeter mortars. And so we were at their... Uh, their paws, and, and so we did a service there with the backdrop of all the lava rock and everything, and so uh, we had an amazing time, and that's just the stuff that the Lord used me with. My wife was just an integral part of the ministry there, um, finding herself in, in, in odd uh, places of ministry, like uh, being a commissioner of a spouse kickball league, uh, hosting women in the house, and uh, working with a lot of young wives uh, that were, some of them were teenagers still, uh, that were married and living in the middle of the of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean, away from all their friends and family for the first time, and, and this guy that they thought was amazing, and then reality set in, and he wasn't all that lovely. And so Autumn was able to be there in just countless hours of gospel conversations and ministry that happened. And I really tie it back to Calvary West Hills because 
Y'all were the last place we went to, and I remember we had prayer cards, and we had asked y'all to pray for us, and then as I went on the deployments, I was feeding prayer requests on a weekly basis to Kendrick, and he was sharing those with some of the folks here at the church. I don't know who all was in on those, but we are just very, very appreciative of local bodies of believers like y'all that pray and support and encourage. Uh, You're needed but make no mistake, the ministry I was doing and I continue to do in the Navy, I'm, I'm back in San Diego now and I'm doing uh, a training to be a hospital chaplain for the next year. Uh, but we, we have the same call, me and you. We have the same call. And, and, and that call really is encapsulated, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, Paul calls it a, a ministry of reconciliation. We can get that, uh, that slide up. Um, I believe we've got that one, right? He says, uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is past and new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, that is that Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us whether it's a, a, a deacon or a pastor or a missionary or a seminary professor, a Bible scholar, it doesn't matter who you are if you have some sort of a vocational title for ministry. Every member of the body is just as important and imperative as any of the others. And we all have this same ministry to present the gospel, to live the gospel in hopes that the Holy Spirit will do a great work and bring others into the fold of the family of faith. And you're entrusted with that here in the greater Los Angeles area. And, and apparently in Mindanao, Philippines. What, what's the name of that town? Tupi. Calvary West Hills, Tupi. You know, I mean, it's just this amazing thing, right? But, but what, is it, what does a ministry of reconciliation like look like? What, what, what does that consist of? You know? And, and what I have found in my philosophy of ministry of, of, of studying the Bible uh, for so long, I've been a Christian for over 25 years now, that Paul summarizes it in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. And that's why I asked the team to read. Uh, so we want to look at a ministry that reconciles is, is presented here. And if you have your Bible, please open it up and find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because that's really where we're, we're going to camp out this morning for the next few minutes. So the, the, the verse in, in chapter 2 verse 8 in the ESV, it, it's, it's almost like uh, I think of a teen... A, a teen uh, a romantic relationship where one person doesn't want to admit that, they're, that they love the other person in the way that the ESV translated it. So if you could pop it up there. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you. I don't love them, but I would say I'm affectionately desirous of them. Because right? they don't want to admit it. That's what love is, right? So let's just call it love. All the other translations for the ESV called it love. Right? So because we loved you so much, so love is there. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves or our own lives because you had become very dear to us. It's bookmarked by love. Feeling very, someone feels very dear to you, you're affectionately desirous of them. This is what love is. And to love someone is to share your life and to share the gospel with them. That's what the ministry of reconciliation is. Many times I've met Christians and I've even been tempted myself that I would rather do one and not the other. Right? Like, hey, I want to share the gospel with you, but like, I don't want to have you in my house. I don't actually want to spend time with you. I just want to tell you the gospel. And I hope you believe it. And I hope you and Jesus have a great relationship, but I don't really want a whole lot to do with you. 
Or the flip is, I don't really want to tell you about Jesus, but I, I just want to like, be a kind, generous, philanthropic person towards you. And, and, but we don't want to talk about religion because religion's awkward, and, and I don't want you to make, maybe feel uncomfortable around me. So I'm going to pull Jesus out of it, but I'm just going to be a kind, lo- loving, nice person to you. Have you ever been tempted with both of those? I know I have. But Paul says the ministry that reconciles is sharing your life and sharing the gospel with people. And I want us to walk out today more aware that we want to mimic or imitate Paul in the way that he did this. Because if we know from 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul was telling the Corinthians, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why I appreciate what uh, Melissa talked about uh, with the song is everything we just sang about what Jesus has done for us, he is entrusting us to go and, and present that message so others can be reconciled to him through our love for them, just like Christ has loved us so dearly. And so the question I want to ask of this, uh, this passage in First Thessalonians is, well, how did he do it? How in the world did he actually share his life and share the gospel with people? And so I think we can glean some things for us so that this Christmas season when people are more mindful of Jesus and more mindful of that Christmas story that we can make sure that they can see and hear the gospel in us. And the first uh, component, uh, there's going to be four that I have seen in the passage, is a ministry that reconciles is a ministry that is prayerful. It has prayer. Prayer is one of the four components. Now that's not clear here in chapter two, but if you flip your page to chapter one, At the beginning of this letter, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's always praying for them constantly praying for them, remembering to pray for them. And even in uh, chapter 3, uh, he, he talks about that, you know, that continual nature of prayer as well. And so it's this idea that he's, he, he's teaching us to be prayerful always. Jesus taught that we reap what we sow, right? And prayer applies. We, we will see that we have conflict or we have challenge or we have just a prayer list of things to pray for in our life or we have needs. And, and, and many times, like, prayer is like the fourth thing we do instead of the first thing we do. Are you like that? I know I'm like that sometimes. Like I just, I'm like, why haven't I prayed about this? Like I, I, I'm a child of the God of the universe and I haven't asked him for help yet. As if he's, like, waiting for me to figure it out, like this God helps those who help themselves philosophy, which is, you won't find that in the Bible. You know, he teaches us to pray. We know like passages like Luke ten two usually is what I hear during like mission emphases, and I don't know if you've used it. You know, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the harvest field, and that Amen to that. That is true. That's Jesus talking, right? But when Jesus was considering the practicality of sharing his life in the gospel with people, he he had some different uh, takes on this. And in John six, we can glean a little bit. And I want to put this reference up. They're going to post it up. It says, Jesus is talking, it's after they, they thought he was crazy because he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have life. And they're like, you're a cannibal? This is a crazy talk, right? And, and he's trying to correct the disciples after. Everybody says, this guy's crazy, and they walk away. And he's trying to explain to them. He says, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
parentheses, for Jesus knew in the, from the beginning who, uh, were, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. So my point is this, is Jesus said, I don't want you to think that my ministry is a failure. And I want you to understand that there's going to be plenty of people that say no to the gospel. And, and some of you even, because Judas was going to betray him. So I don't want you to think that it failed. Really what the issue is, is unless the Father grants them to come to faith, like, they're not going to come to faith. And so if we want to have a ministry that reconciles, we've got to be begging the Father to save these people. Because it's not going to be us. It's him. Again, in the passage, it says, our gospel, we know that God has chosen you because the gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. And if we want to tap into the power of God, we got to pray. And Paul knew that. God is the one that gives the growth, right? And so if we're going to have an effective gospel ministry in our lives, we've got to be committed to prayer, committed to praying for people. Well, who should I be praying for? Well, this can be different generationally, right? Where, where your context is. So it used to be, oh, I left my phone over there. But if you pull your phone out, you've got a whole contact list, right? You'd be praying for them. Real easy mission field. So, oh, my phone, it's right there. Like it's just in the palm of my hand. Uh, it, and, and where I see um, this happening is, is I think it begins with your family members and household. Be praying for the Lord to work there. Be praying for the Lord to work on your block. Be praying for the Lord to work in through your church or this city or, or a certain people group. Um, that we prep the battle space, battle space for gospel ministry with praying. And so if you're not seeing God do a lot of powerful things in and among and around you, uh, consider that maybe this component is, is not as strong as it needs to be in your life and in my life. I know I experienced that. And so when I see a need for the movement of God, I know that the primary step for me is to pray and say, God, do a work. Where are you working? How can you use me? So prayer if we want to have an effective uh, ministry that reconciles, we need to pray. But secondly, there's a second component here if we go back to chapter 2, and that is agony. And you're like, what, what are you talking about? So if, you, if we come back to, to verse 2, he says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And that word conflict in Greek is where we get our word for agony in English. It's agony. And so uh, if I had a seminary student, they'd be here, no, 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 Jason, like that, that should not be agony, it should be boldness. What we need is boldness. Maybe so, but for every Christian I've met that is a bold Christian, I've met 15 that have conflict. How many of you experience conflict and agony in your life? Every single one of us in the room, not all of us would say, hey, how many of you are bold? I might not see everybody's hand go up. But if I ask, hey, do you have conflict in your life? Everybody's hand's going to go up. And, and so, so we need to take this in. Paul was experiencing deep agony, conflict. Uh, the word can be used sometimes for fighting, right? Fight the good fight of faith in 2 Timothy. It's agonize the good agony if you were to literally translate it, right? Like this is a part of gospel ministry is when it's difficult, 
I, a lot of times I've heard from folks who are struggling when they are struggling with, man, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm fulfilling a great commission in my life. And I'm like, well, well tell me what's happening. Well, you know, I've, I'm just too busy. I've got too much going on right now to be, you know, doing great commission work. I've got this going on and this responsibility and that. And amen, I hear that. But maybe that's why the conflict's there. In Paul's situation, he has just come from being mistreated at Philippi. And so I thought, hey, we should probably go back to that scene in Acts chapter 16 because it's pretty significant. And so it's going to come up on the screen. Um, says that, uh, so they're there in Philippi. Lydia's been converted. They've been telling the gospel in the synagogues. And so here's what happens. People get ticked off. The Jews specifically. It says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Not a pleasant experience, right? And they had inflicted many blows, when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, which is a torture technique. And at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. That's a pretty big earthquake. You guys know something about earthquakes on the West Coast, right? And immediately the doors opened, everyone's bonds were fastened, and when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights. And rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And they brought, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In the midst of their agony, they prioritized the gospel. They were praying. They were singing. Everybody could hear these guys. They were holding on in the midst of their pain and their difficulty to the hope that a resurrected Jesus is the one that had called them there. And that that was all that they needed. And as that, I don't know what they preached. I mean, we don't have it here in Acts. But it was so significant that God's power was unleashed in their agony. And a literal earthquake happens. And these guys, this guy got saved from that. That's amazing. If you're going through difficulty right now, as you hold and cling on to Jesus as just a beggar that needs God, People see that. People see the, how is it that you have this hope when you've got all this stuff going on? You know, that was very significant when we were in Hawaii with my wife. She's like, they're like, you have these, these kids and you're homeschooling them. You've got five of them. That's crazy. Who does that? And, and how are you doing this? And it was just Jesus. As you go through difficulty, people are looking like, how are you not drowning? And they're looking for your steadfast anchor of the soul because they need one too. When you're going through difficulty, it's not the time to put the Great Commission on the shelf and come back to it later. It's how can I bring this to the forefront so people can see how I hold on to Jesus in the midst of my agony. And I see Paul approaching Thessalonica. If we've got the map, we could put that up. I don't know how clear that is. But, um, but they were in Philippi. Thessalonica this region called Macedonia, Thessalonica is the capital. Philippi is kind of like a side city, right? And so he travels on down and he gets to Thessalonica. And I can imagine having seen the power of God manifested in that earthquake and the jailer coming to faith, that as they stepped up to Thessalonica and they're kind of on the outskirts of the city, that they knew, man, 
This one, I wonder if it's going to hurt as bad as the last one, because this is going to be bad. They're going to beat us again. But man, the power of God's coming. And we, they were expecting God to work. And it was going to be an amazing thing. But notice verses 7 and 11 back in Acts, cha- or not Acts, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He begins to describe his relationship to them in some terms that I think we can all relate with. Because if you have a parent, or you are a parent, you know that a parent-child relationship is filled with some agony, wouldn't you say? It's filled with some agony. Like, like whether it was the potty training phase, or it was like, why won't they let me stay out past 9 p.m.? Because all my friends do, and like, I'm not 10 anymore, and all of these other kinds of frustrations. Like, that parent-child relationship is filled with some agony, Right? But look at how Paul describes himself in verse 7. He says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then verse 11 and 12, he says, You know like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. When Paul stood on the cusp of Thessalonica, he saw himself, that he he knew that as God was going to work in his life, he was going to become a spiritual parent to some people. And as a parent, I, I also have parents too. As a parent, I want to provide and protect and prepare my children for what I know is coming, that they don't know what's coming. And they think they know everything. I thought I knew everything too. And my parents disconnected on some few things. They got a few things wrong, but they got a lot of things right. And that conflict in, in that midst of that, it's a real challenge. But what I want you to see is this role refines our responsibility is refined by the agony of it. The more my kids, like, I, you don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I'm like, man, how can I help them get this? I, like, I double down. I don't like, oh, yeah, I need to back away. I'm like, I'm going to need to double down and do and even work harder, right? Uh, when I'm providing for my kids and I see that they have a need, I'm like, man, I'm going to work double and triple time at work so that I can meet this need for my kids because I love them so much. The heart of a father and the heart of a mother. My question to you is, is, do you see the Great Commission as though you're stepping into those roles for people that you've never met? That kind of love. That's what Christ is calling us to. Like he's standing on the cusp of Thessalonica knowing he's going to be a spiritual parent to people. And even these Thessalonians, he was there for like two months. He didn't spend a lot of time with them, but he saw himself in a, a parental role to them. He took responsibility for what they were going through. And guess what? They went through their own suffering, didn't they? He modeled for them how to go live through it. But I also think about this in one other aspect, and then we'll go to this third one, is that the suffering that he went through in Philippi validated his message, didn't it? Like, man, like if you were beaten and put in stocks and like there was this earthquake and somehow you got away, like... (coughs) Don't you need to go on vacation? Like, don't you need a break? Don't you need to kind of relax a little bit? Uh, Maybe you've done enough for God. Like, it's okay. You can just go rest now. No. There were more people that needed to know. And he had the heart of a parent, a spiritual parent, to say, hey, I've got to go bring the gospel to others. And so they end up modeling his endurance. Verses 14 and 15. You brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. They went through it too. 
He prepared them. And so make no mistake that the people that you're investing your life in the gospel in, when they view you going through difficulty, you're a model for them. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. When people think, how do Christians handle difficulty? They're going to think about you. And you're like, well, I, they should be thinking about Pastor Kendrick. Uh, he, he, you know, like he's the pastor, he's got the office, and like he served in the military. That guy knows how to, how to go through stuff. They should be thinking about me. No, they're not going to be thinking about him. They're going to be thinking about you because they know you. They don't know him. They know you. And so look at, though, I, I don't want you to miss verse 19 and 20 because there's a reward for agonizing in this way in your ministry of the gospel. It says, Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. When you have shared your life and shared the gospel with people and you see them grow in their faith, that's the treasure. That's the treasure. But if you don't share your faith, you're never going to get to enjoy that treasure. If you don't share your life, you're never going to get to enjoy that treasure. There's a third component to this. And um, I call it listening. I have never felt closer to people, but specifically Christians, in my 25 years of walking with Jesus than people who would sit down and listen to me. I've had plenty of people preach at me, have you? You had a lot of people preach at you? Man, they'll line up to preach at you, but they won't line up to listen to your story. Paul did this for these people. You gotta kinda piece it together as you read the chapter. But in verse, there's a specific way he did it. In verse three, he says, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or attempt to deceive. And then when you jump to verse five, he doubles down, he says, we never came with words of flattery or as a pretext for greed. And then when you look at verse nine, he says, remember brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel to you. He knew that these people specific had wealth disparities. Money was a hot-button topic. Do you have hot-button topics in your family? Like, yeah, we, just, we just agree that we just ain't going to talk about that anymore. Well, for these people, it was money. And if he came in and was like, okay, so like, let's negotiate my salary, like, he knew that, that was never going to happen. Like, it just, that just, you couldn't do that with these people. He couldn't do that, and he didn't want to. And it was so sensitive that he was like, hey, look, I'm going to work, my whole team, we're going to work night and day so that we can earn enough money to take care of ourselves so that we won't be a burden to you, so that we can show you how generous we want to be by just making, taking care of our own needs and probably even taking care of some of theirs. And he couldn't have done that if he didn't listen and read these people and see what their needs were, see what they were sensitive about. And you can't figure out what somebody's needs are or what they're sensitive about, where they're a lot, the term a lot of uh, younger generation use now is what triggers them. You've heard that word trigger? You know what I'm talking about? So, but you can't figure out what triggers somebody until you sit down and you listen to their story. Proverbs 25:11. It's just this odd proverb. And it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like, 
there was this big resounding yes and amen in Paul's ministry when his team came in and they didn't ask for any money and they worked and earned all their money. It was like, that was what opened the door for them. And when we listen and we hear people's story, it opens doors for the gospel. And when it comes to sharing our faith, so many people are so caught up with, okay, like, pastor, like, okay, so what do I say? What, what, what do I do? Is it Romans Road? Is it, you know, what, what you know, share Jesus without fear was something that, that came out when I was a teenager. Uh, and I was coming to, I was like, why are people afraid to talk about, the, you know, and so there's just different, there's all these programs because it's hard to share your faith. But nobody ever says, hey, listen to their story of their life. Just listen to them. That's how Jesus did work. Did you know that? Like, Jesus did a lot of preaching, don't get me wrong. But Jesus uh, did this. In John 5, 17, and in 19 and 20, I know I'm skipping around, guys. I'm sorry about that. So we'll come back to that quote I was going to do. It says, Jesus answered them, My father's working until now, and I am working. And in, in verse 19, he says, Has not Moses... Whoa, that's not the right one. That's not the right one. But that's okay. I'll just bring it up. Just go... Yeah, don't, don't worry about that. I don't know. That, that's my mistake. I put the wrong verse in there. But he says this. He says in 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son, of, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he's doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. It was this idea that when Jesus got up for the day, he was not like, okay, so like, I've got my sermon ready, I've got my, my mission ready, and I'm just going to go do what I can do. No, it was more so that he was like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see where God's working. And I'm going to join him for that. And I'm going to kind of jump in and see where he might use me. Sometimes Christians will approach someone and they share their faith and they forget that like God's been working in their life long before you showed up. And he's going to be working in their life long after they have that conversation with you. So maybe if we listen a little bit, see where God is working in that person and find opportunities to make connections with the, the story of the gospel. And not just the story of the gospel, but the story of the gospel and how you relate with them in the things that Jesus has done in your life. But we can't neglect the listening uh, one quote uh, from Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, we live in a post-Christian world that is sick and tired of hearing from Christians. But who could argue with mercy-driven hospitality? Now, her whole premise of her book is, hey, she invites people in her home, she feeds them, she listens to them, she makes some coffee and says, hey, talk, tell, me. What, you know, what, tell me about your life. Because that's how she came to faith in Jesus Christ is someone uh, invited her in and through a course of like a year or two of coming in for studying scripture and, and, and eating meals and all this stuff, she came to faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you all, listening for people's needs, their hurts, their story, their own agony, and making connections to the gospel. That's a powerful ministry. Just to listen, to hear, to know God put me here so he's going to do something. And to put your trust not in your own resourcefulness, but in his power. And then lastly, we've got to ask this question, well, what if they don't want God? Am I just supposed to go bring, what if people don't want to hear the message? Should I just be quiet? Well, if, 
I, I deal with this as a chaplain too. So some, I, I'm, I'm learning in hospital ministry uh, uh, how, to, how to make things happen and, and build gospel conversations with, uh, with patients. And, and so I will show up to the nurses like, oh, the chaplain's here. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was just wondering, you know, you know I'm coming through making my rounds. And, and they're like, oh, wait a second. And they're knocking on the door to the patient. They're like, hey, you want the chaplain to pray for you? No, no, I, no, I'm okay. They're like, oh, chaplain, we're good here. We don't need you. They're like, all I do is just go pray with people, and that's it. Um, it's more than that, right? It's more than that. And, and so what, what if they don't want God? What am I supposed to do? Now, that's not really the best illustration. But this, the fourth component is what kicks in and what motivates us, and that's love for God. We tell the gospel, we share our life, and we share the gospel because we love the Lord, This is something that he enjoys. In verse 4, he says, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So just like we receive this ministry, this great commission from God, we go and we fulfill that mission for God. And that's really challenging. Because it gets tempting to think, well, I just want them to believe so bad that I want them to, to accept me. And, and sometimes it gets tempted to maybe leave some things out about the gospel so that they'll like it more. Have you ever been tempted about that? I have. Like, well, maybe, yeah, just, we'll, we'll get to that, like, next week. <laughs> right? No, no. Like, and, and there's discernment in every relationship that we build. But, we need to be motivated to tell the gospel because it really pleases God when we do. He enjoys when we share the, the message. He enjoys it. In, in fact, in, in Romans ten seventeen it says, faith comes from hearing the message of Christ or the words of Christ, right? Like that's where faith comes from. And in, if you connect that with 1 Peter 1, 7, um, it says that faith is more precious than gold that perishes even though it's tested by fire. In God's economy, faith is like handing out gold. It's, it's more precious than gold. It's valuable. And so it's like, God, I want to give you my best. That's why I love the little drummer boy, you know, uh, uh, him that we sing at Christmas time because he's playing his best for him, right? You know, and, uh, and, and that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a heartbeat of every Christian is to give your best to God. But if you want to do something that will really cause him to enjoy things, then we want to speak the message of Christ. We want to live the message of Christ. To successfully share the gospel is, yes, to share it without error, as it says in verse 3. But it's to share it to please God, to love God. It's not about primarily a number of baptisms, although I showed some baptism pictures up here, right? But I presented those from my quarterly reports for the North American Fiction Board. So they want to know about those, right? And they're good things to celebrate. But when it comes to this, it's like, Lord, like, we can't miss this motive too. Like, Lord, I want to make you happy, so I need to be telling people the gospel. He's going to test our hearts, according to verse 4. He's going to know our motives. He's going to know how we invested our life. And there is a time where we have to give an account. And the account isn't like, well, Lord, you know, here are all the times I told this story, right? Like I shared with all kinds of people, see? Remember, there's two components to this, right? 
It's sharing the gospel and sharing your life. And you've got to have both. It is all in. Just like Jesus was all in for us, he took on human form. He became a baby. And, and, and it's just such a significant thing that he had to be made just like we are so that he could be that merciful and faithful high priest. He understands all of our sorrows, all of our aspirations. He understands all of our rejection of him, and yet he still came to come and rescue us and to die for us. So as we, uh, as we close, I want us to reflect on this philosophy of sharing our life and sharing with the gospel because we want to have a ministry, of rec- uh, ministry that reconciles in our lives. So just some questions to think through. Are we, are we sharing our life intentionally with people so that they can lo- know the love of God better? That can be in a lot of different ways. Are there people that you're specifically praying for that God would open the door for you to be able to share? And are you praying for that continually and constantly? Are you prepping your mission field for the Holy Spirit and the power of God and full conviction to come when you get that opportunity to share your faith? Are you more motivated to be liked by these people or to be, to be pleasing God by sharing the message? Or are we making the ministry of reconciliation optional because we just got too much going on right now? I can't do that. These are questions we've got to think about. I think of Peter. Peter swore straight up and down to Jesus. They might all bail on you, but I never, ever will, Lord. I will never turn my back on you, Jesus. I will die for you. I will kill for you. And Jesus is like, pull the nights out, you're going to deny me three times. And he did, didn't he? He did. And that third time, the rooster crowed, like it broke him. Broke him. And I've had moments like that in my life. I don't know about you. Where I felt just so disloyal, such a failure. I just wasn't doing what he did. And he did all of this for me, and I've done so little. And then I did something to disrespect him like that and be so disloyal. And then in John 21, Jesus shows up. He's got fish for breakfast on the beach. I'll never understand that. Uh, But they realize they have this big catch again and they know it's Jesus. And Paul, or Peter, jumps in the water, swims to the shore. He's already got the breakfast prepared. Those guys are eating. And he asked Jesus three times, remember? He asked him, do you love me? Do you remember what his response was after Peter said, Jesus, you know everything. You know I love you. What did he say? He said, feed my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. So if your, your answers to these questions are not resounding, hey, things are going well right now, just know that you can come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Like, please give me the motivation that I need to live the way you want me to live. And guess what? He will. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you. He'll say, yeah, now, now that I've got your attention, like, I want to bring somebody to mind that's on my heart, that I want to be on your heart. So as we, uh, the music team comes up, I want to enter us into a time of prayer. And it may be that there's someone that God's laying on your heart that he wants you to share your life and share the gospel with. I don't know who it is. 
but let's have these few moments for God to bring some people to mind so that you can share this week. I mean, it's Christmas, right? That's what Christmas is about. It's Jesus coming to rescue us and to bring the hope of the gospel. And he wants us to do that too. So Lord, as we, as we hear this message and we see how Paul lived, Lord, I have never been beaten with rods for my faith, but I have gone through some agony. And so of all my brothers and sisters in this room, we have our stories and you know our stories very, very well, Lord. I pray that for us who haven't been as eager about the Great Commission as we should be, that, Lord, you'd hear our hearts. You'd be merciful. It's hard sometimes, and you know, we do have a lot going on, and we are busy, and we have hurts, and we ask that you would come in with forgiveness and healing and confidence to us, Please, fill us fresh with an understanding of the power of of what you do, Holy Spirit, to come in and convict us of sin, but then to forgive us and to make us brand new and to fill us with love for you. And I pray, God, that you would bring people to mind that are on your heart in these moments during our song, as we go to the car, as we have lunch, that you want us to share with. Give us courage. Give us love for you. Give us listening ears because it's so hard sometimes so that we might be your hands and your feet in a world that needs to know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.